This is Books, Beats, and Beyond, where we will bring you provocative music and engaging interviews from music artists, authors, and others with topics that will pique your curiosity. I'll be your host, Taj. Today, I'm talking with Shawnee Robinson and Anna Simonton about their book, None of the Above, the untold story of the Atlanta public schools cheating scandal, corporate greed, and the criminalization of educators. In March 2013, 35 educators in the Atlanta public schools were charged with racketeering and conspiracy, the same charges used to bring down the American mafia for allegedly changing students' answers on standardized tests. The youngest of the accused, Shawnee Robinson, had taught for only three years and was a new mother when she was wrongfully convicted and faced up to 25 years in prison. Critics framed the cheating scandal as one of the worst crimes to be perpetrated against students. None of the above, Shawnee Robinson and journalist Anna Simonton look back to show how black children in Atlanta were being deprived long before some teachers allegedly changed the answers on their students' tests. Examining corporate-led education reform movement, hyper-policing in black communities, cycles of displacement and gentrification, and widening racial and economic disparities in Atlanta, they show how the financially powerful have profited from privatization and the dismantling of public education. Shawnee Robinson is an alumna of Tennessee State University and taught in Atlanta public schools for three years. She's currently a supporter of social justice causes. Anna Simonton is an independent journalist and editor for Scallywag magazine. Her work has been published by The Nation, In These Times, and Altnet, among others. Shawnee Robinson and Anna Simonton, welcome to Books, Beats, and Beyond. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yes, glad to be here. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. This is such an extraordinary book that needs to be told. So just to help lay the groundwork, um, what actually initiated the suspicion that the Atlantic Public Schools, we're going to refer to it as APS, was cheating on their standardized tests by erasures? And why you explain that, elaborate on what erasures are to help us out. Sure, Shawnee, do you want me to take that well, one or you want to go for it? Yeah, I can, and you can just hop in. Sure. Um, in December in December of 2008, there was a report in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution released about suspicious score jumps on the CRCT. That's the Criterion Reference Competency Test, the standardized test that all first through eighth graders had to take. But it was in five school districts across the state, including one school in APS um, named Deerwood Academy. So students that had failed the CRCT could retake the CRCT in the summertime, but their scores had increased so high that testing experts believed it was impossible without human intervention. So this prompted the Governor's Office of Student Achievement to order a statewide erasure analysis for the 2009 CRCT test scores. And so in February of 2010, the results are released from the erasure analysis. And there were 191 schools statewide that had high levels of wrong to right erasures. And there was another 
178 schools that had a moderate amount of erasures. All of the school districts were asked to do internal investigations to determine what happened. And so what happened was Governor Sonny Perdue and the Governor's Office of Student Achievement, they were not pleased with the internal investigations that took place in APS, and there was another school district in Dotary County. And so they launched a special investigation and appointed three special investigators and gave them autonomy over several GBI agents, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, to go into the school to find out what happened. Mm. Anna, did you want to add? Sure, yeah. So they ended up finding in um, APS that, um, uh, I think it was 44 schools implicated, um, so over 100 educators uh, that through this process of GBI interrogation, um, either th that they were implicated in one way or another. So there were some teachers, educators, um, so that includes teachers, testing coordinators, principals, administrators. There were some folks who confessed. There were others that were implicated in this report by having been named uh, by their colleagues. And mm -hmm. what we found was that there were false accusations happening, and that's how Shawnee got dragged into this mess because what the GBI was doing was pulling teachers out of their classrooms with no attorney present. Mm. Um, we've heard stories uh, anecdotally from folks saying, you know, they were threatening my pension. They were saying, if I don't, you know, tell the, the truth or cooperate with the language they use, if you don't cooperate, right? So the GBI is going in with a preconceived notion of what they believe the truth to be and saying, if you don't cooperate uh, by telling us what we think happened, um, you know, these are the ramifications that could that could happen to you. So people were experiencing intimidation. Um, and the person who accused Shani, her story changed each time that she talked to the GBI agent. She began by saying, you know, I don't know anything about cheating going on. Um, and after several rounds of that, um, finally said that she thought that Shani and um, two other co-workers had been erasing uh, answers on students' tests and bubbling in the correct answers. Now, what they were doing in actuality was erasing um, what they called stray marks, doodles from the test, because these are first and second graders whose scores actually did not even count toward the mm. um, did not count the uh, benchmarks um, known as at the national level. There was adequate yearly progress, which um, legislation called No Child Left Behind required that schools meet that benchmark each year or face sanctions. So that's where this sort of pressure was coming from to increase test scores each year. But the first and second grade students uh, did not count toward that. And they didn't count toward the district targets, which were imposed by um, the Atlanta Public Schools Board of Education. Um, and so the supposed cheating that this colleague was saying was going on, um, she was able to sort of twist at what was actually a legitimate uh, reason for those teachers to be handling those tests. It's in the uh, testing materials that testing coordinators receive. It's in the protocol, right, to erase doodles because these are young children drawing all over their tests as they're having to sit there for hours and hours um, and to fix illegible handwriting on the test. So so that's the context um, for how teachers got um, implicated. Uh, while some did confess, others were wrongfully accused. And this was sort of blown out of proportion to say that it was much uh, bigger than it was. 
Wow. So why and did I was just mm-hmm. yeah. touch on, mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was going to touch on um, what Anna was talking about. The woman who actually falsely accused me later, she testified during the trial and they asked her, why did you cheat? And she testified that she cheated to meet the district targets, which were basically a set of benchmarks imposed by the APS school board and administration. But here's the thing. She taught second grade. Mm. There were no district targets. Mm. And so her testimony really didn't even make any sense. Mm. And so, um, you know, I, I wonder if she was told to say that because she was a veteran teacher. So it's hard to believe that she didn't know that second grade you know, there were no targets. Right, right. So you said the Georgia Bureau of Investigation investigated possible racers statewide and they found incidents of cheating in other areas. But why was APS so singled out in this, you know? Yeah, I think one reason um, is that the governor decided that the internal investigation that APS produced was insufficient. And there was some truth to that because what happened with APS's internal investigation was that actually the Atlanta Chamber of Commerce orchestrated it. So the Chamber of Commerce had been very involved in um, sort of shaping Atlanta public schools in their own interests going back to the mid nineties. And they were very involved in recruiting Dr. Beverly Hall who was um, hailed as a sort of reformer who was going to turn around the school system and make these test scores go up. Um, so she was painted as the villain in all of this, but it really was Atlanta's business interests um, that were even a, a step higher than her, sort of guiding what was going on. And so they produced a, an internal investigation and handed it in to the governor. Um, and it sort of skimmed the surface. And that was um, that was at least his... Uh, professed reason for focusing in on Atlanta. There's also, there was also tension already between the governor and Dr. Beverly Hall that we don't know all of the layers to, um, but we mm-hmm. do believe that there's a, a, there was a, already a, a political sort of um, tension within, within their relationship that may have had to do with that decision as well. Um, and then in Doherty County, uh, the investigation was also, you know, deemed insufficient, um, probably because the person that the county hired, that the school system there hired, um, tried to intimidate the uh, the state official working under Sonny, Governor Sonny Perdue, who was sort of spearheading things. He tried to intimidate her and, and, and essentially have it swept under the rug, um, and, and the governor didn't like that. So what was interesting about those two cases, though, is that in Doherty County, the GBI report that eventually came out, uh, it came out several months after the one concerning Atlanta, came out right, it was released right before Christmas and just sort of quietly released with not much fanfare, no charges were ever brought. Um, And and yet what the report said was that cheating in Doherty County was on par with that in Atlanta, it was just as widespread. So why was that not turned into the, um, you know, spectacle and the sensational, you know, media story that Atlanta was? I mean, one thing that would point to in the book is that the superintendent in Doherty County was a white woman um, who, you know, sort of had this like political connections. And whereas Dr. Beverly Hall um, is a black woman from New York, New Jersey is where she had been before um, and and didn't get along as well with the governor. Mm. 
Gunshots, broken glass, my city's beautiful Dirty streets, full of trash, my city's beautiful Dope dealers, tainted water, my city's beautiful Prostitutes, on the corner, this shit is beautiful Corrupt cops, shady mayor, my city's beautiful So much pollution in the air, my city's beautiful Bad school, worst judge Praises due. I'm glad I made it through. Another night alive for another day of school. I'm on my way to school. I see my favorite news. Caster right outside my crib reporting daily news. She pretty as the penny that I found a day or two ago. That helped me buy that Twix I ate at school. One I had for breakfast, the other I ate at noon. I took my free lunch home for dinner, I played it smooth Today I'm thinking about this test I gotta take at two To let me know if I can graduate from 8th and move On to high school, I think my grades are cool Enough if not I guess I'll stay in 8th till they improve Or maybe they'll push me through like they did my neighbor Pooh He couldn't really read but the administration knew He be in and out of school I guess he claim a crew The teachers always say he got a bad behavior mood His cousins gang bang, pops a gang banger too His uncle was a kingpin, I guess he made some major moves But his partner got not, then he got incarcerated too They wanted me to hustle, I just wanna stay in school I told them I was straight, I had to break the news If that's the code of the streets, I had to break the rules Of course I want them Jordans, Carolina, baby blue But I'm used to having nothing, I don't need the latest shoes These ones I got on my feet help me make it safe to school Every day, past the homeless man, they call him Crazy Lou I'm just trying to make it through Another day of school, so one day maybe I can be mayor And I can say to you Bullet scars, tattoos, my city's beautiful Potholes, black eyes, my city's beautiful Dark nights with no lights, my city's beautiful Sandwich with no meat, my city's beautiful I think something that you guys touched on in the book that was interesting and enlightening to a lot of people is something called corporate education reform. Can you guys define that and and what's its goal and how does that affect the in particular the public school system in Atlanta? Well, in the book, you're right, we do talk a lot about um, the corporate education reform movement, and it actually has its roots in the decades following Brown versus Board. Um, they were actually trying to create whites-only private schools that were government-funded under the cold word school choice because there was a backlash of white parents that didn't want to send their children to school with black students. And so that's the first time we hear about vouchers and school choice. Um, in the 1980s, businesses started getting involved in trying to craft an education system that would serve their interests and build off the notion of school choice. And this corporate backing has opened up this multi-billion dollar for-profit education industry where powerful financial interests are investing in everything from education technology to testing materials. And so with charter schools, there's less oversight on school spending, and it's, it's easier for these companies to profit off of schools. And so too many of our public education dollars are now going to these education companies that don't prioritize student learning. They're prioritizing their own profits. Hmm. 
Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we've seen, um, you know, the those corporate interests uh, backing people for who elected officials who are increasingly implementing policies that that favor charter school expansion and enable um, the the growth of this multi-billion dollar market. So help us help me understand charter schools, because charter schools are kind of private schools, but they get public funding, but no public oversight. How is that even possible? (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, they, they're public in the sense that, um, you know, they're, they're funded by public school dollars. Their um, students attend them for free at no cost to their families. Um, and they're supposed to be open, but they're not, they're not open to the same, um, you know, necessarily group of students because many of them um, use a lottery system. Um, so they don't have to take in, um, all of the students that, you know, if you show up to a, a neighborhood public school and it, they take you no matter what, there's no questions, you know, to that. So um, that what we've seen with charter schools, um, some of the problems that arise from that are through that lottery system, even though it's supposedly created to try to ensure that um, that everyone gets a fair shake. Um, the char- many charter schools have been found to create ways of weeding out the students that they don't want. So students with special needs, for example, that, um, you know, there's there's additional resources that they require. And, and in order to cut corners financially, they might try to have a you know fewer number of special needs students, students that they um, think won't test as well. Um, and there's all kinds of, um, you know, notions about different demographics of students uh, that, that go into that, um, trying to boost test scores by really cherry picking. So mm-hmm. um, those are some of the issues with charter schools. Shani, did you um, want to speak yeah. to that? And I was going to say, as far as our trial is concerned, um, during the middle of our trial, there was an article released in the local newspaper, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, um, and it was called D is for Darn Good Charter. Um, and basically, it was an article about how horrible, you know, um, Atlanta public schools had become and how the, you know, the trial was just a reminder of everything sorted with Atlanta public schools. And in the same article, it highlights um, the school called Drew Charter School, and it characterizes it as a symbol of hope and renewal. And so it was really, really pretty blatant what they were doing. Um, you know, as far as our trial was concerned, it was almost like they were saying, you know, look at how awful these uh, public schools have become. You know, we need to come over and and take over our the, the schools that are failing. Right. This this cheating scandal. We talk about it as who did this benefit, and it really benefit benefited those that uh, stood to profit from this narrative um, that was crafted that Shani just described of, um, you know, this cheating scandal is just another example of, of our terrible public schools here. And we need to have these charter schools as an alternative. Something important to note about that, um, that charter school, Drew Charter School was Atlanta's first charter school and was created um, at the same time that one of the city's most powerful developers, Tom Cousins, was remaking a public housing complex called East Lake Meadows 
into um, one of the city's first sort of experiments with mixed income development. So this was in the 1990s when this was still a new idea. It really paved the way for the dismantling of public housing nationwide. Um, but this developer said, I, I not only want to take over this public housing complex and turn it into um, you know, a, a new complex that's both market rate and subsidized housing, which effectively displaced uh, hundreds of low-income black families and uh, drew in um, wealthier white residents, um, gentrifying the neighborhood. He said, I also want to take over the elementary school and create this charter school. And these were his words that I'm paraphrasing. Um, because that will make the market rate units in the public housing development in the in the new mixed income development uh, um, desirable. Mm. So he was pinpointing the the privatization of the school as a way to privatize and gentrify the neighborhood. And so we we look at that throughout the book how the real estate market is um, very much tied in with. Uh, the politics of education in Atlanta and elsewhere, and that that's an important piece of this story when we're asking who stands to benefit from the demonization of uh, public school teachers, black educators in particular, um, and public education as a as an institution. Yeah, you're right, because I, you could talk to any family, and when it comes to looking for a home, a lot of them think about how's a school in that neighborhood, right? So these two arms working together to privatize um, the school and also uh, gentrify the area, those kind of go hand in hand and almost kind of force, um, they're, they're feeding on families' fears and, 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 and promoting this, 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 uh, this enterprise, um, which is it's so... You, you, you're kind of amazed at how diabolical some of the, <laughs> some of this stuff right. is. Uh, it's, 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 it's just incredible. I'm just a boy from the hood. I feel like furious styles. Gingerfication in our ghetto. This nation is ours. We built this shit.
I think just to help tie it in when we were talking about the corporate um, education reform, there was something called tax allocation dollars, um, TAD. If you could just touch a little bit on that, I think that helped people understand how this all kind of works together, this, this, this movement to, uh, to change the, to privatize the school system. Yeah, it, um, Atlanta has something called tax allocation districts, and other cities have it too, although in most places it's called tax increment financing, so the acronym there is TIF, T-I-F, but we have TADS, T-A-D, and what it is are these geographic areas, so the city says, okay, this neighborhood or maybe these three neighborhoods together are going to be considered a TAD. And we're going to take all the, um, we're going to freeze the property tax revenue that's going to be collected by the city, the county, and the school system, which traditionally, you know, collect that property tax revenue. And that's one of the main things that fund these institutions. Um, We're going to freeze that at this particular, at the amount that we collect at the year the TAD is created. And any additional revenue um, that is created by new development. So they, they sell some municipal bonds, give that to private developers, and, um, and, and really try to have development in this particular area. And as that increases the property values, um, the additional revenue does not get collected. It goes into a slush fund for even more development. So mm. it's essentially, that was kind of a long-winded way of explaining that it is a way to take uh, public dollars, give it to private developers, and it's coming from the school system. These Mm. are dollars that are supposed to be going into the classroom, and instead in Atlanta they've been used to build luxury condos, boutique office and retail spaces, something called the Beltline that is our sort of um, rails-to-trails project that's this big bike path circling the city, and it's really, the New York Times called it a glorified sidewalk. I agree. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's great to have, but it, there's, it's been hyped to the point where it's one of the biggest um, drivers of gentrification, property values along the Beltline, and, and really within several miles of it, have just spiked enormously. Um, and we see property listings saying, you know, Beltline, Beltline, um, you know, uh, this is a great property and the tenants are going to be evicted soon. Don't worry. So seeing things like that in these historically black neighborhoods. So the, the funds that are building that are and displacing black children in Atlanta are the funds that are supposed to be educating them in the classroom because of the way these tax allocation districts are um, are organized. Wow. So, and just to piggyback mm-hmm. on how the oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, please. I was just going to say, just to piggyback on how these schools are drained of money and resources, Governor Sonny Perdue and Nathan Deal cut the state's education budget almost every year they were in office, hmm. totaling nearly $9 billion in cuts. And so this left neighborhood schools to struggle with bigger class sizes and fewer resources. And the governor, um, as far as our trial was concerned, um, introduced new legislation called the Opportunity School District during our trial. It was an idea that was modeled after Louisiana's Recovery School District, mm. where basically local control would be taken away from the schools that were considered to be, quote-unquote, failing. Mm. So he wrote out this plan the same exact day that the prosecution rested in our trial. Wow, that really? That was the day that there was a lot of media attention focused on the trial, yes. And mm. so the trial was really like, a smokescreen, you know, in a lot of ways, 
of what was going on in terms of education policy at the state level. Mm. So you and your and some of your colleagues, like you said, were had to were interrogated by the um, GBI and um, and you met with GBI numerous times. Um, I think like of anyone, if you feel like you have nothing to hide, you're going to meet with them. Uh, can you talk about how they went, how that went about when you were talking to them? And then, you know, after you talk about that, we could talk about once you decided to kind of turn yourself in um, and while you were in jail, you were with other educators and you got to hear their experience. What 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 was similar about that and what surprised you about what was going on? So during the, during the investigation, I actually met a GBR agent in a mall parking lot. Um, he just called and, you know, asked him to meet with him. Um, and so at the same time, that was that same day that I met with the GBI, um, other agents came into the schools and teachers were pulled from their classrooms and they were interrogated. And there were no attorneys present. I didn't have an attorney present. And teachers were asked to sign a pre-written voluntary statement form, which was basically saying that you didn't have any knowledge about cheating and you didn't cheat. Hmm. And I was also asked to to sign the form, and I did. Um, And the form said voluntary. So technically you didn't have to sign, but this was the GBI, you know, encouraging you to sign this form. And so later some of the same folks, that signed the form were charged with false statements and writings, which is a felony. Mm. Um, so it really, it was almost seemed like a trap, right. you know, um, here they're handing you something to sign that could later lead to felony charges, but it says voluntary, you know, so it, you know, teachers were scared and right. they did what they felt was right for them at the time. Um, and so, yes, when I, I actually learned about the indictment, my husband called me while I was carpooling with a coworker and he told me, he said, you weren't indicted in the, in the cheating trial. And, you know, I'm trying not to completely freak out in the car. Um, but he says that I saw your name scrolling across the bottom of the screen, you know, on the news. That's how we all found out. It just came out in the news. Mm. Um, and so they said that we had to turn ourselves in by the following Monday. Um, but while I was in jail, I heard all kinds of stories about how teachers were threatened, how they were coerced into making statements. There was a story that I heard about a GBI agent who laid his gun out on the table during an interrogation. Another agent who threatened to take a teacher's um, children away from her. Teachers were threatened to have their pensions taken away from them. And so teachers were scared. Um, and so, yeah, that was that was pretty much what happened during those GBI interviews. Wow. I mean, <clears throat> you know, everybody, hindsight's twenty twenty, and everybody always says what I would do. But you really don't know until you're in that situation. And, um, exactly. you know, that, that, that situation right there is incredible. I mean, just... It, 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 it listen to you guys talk it seems like there was this big orchestrated plan that was just launched right and how everything just kind of flowed streamly and we know we have definitions of stuff called the corporate education reform and and all these different strategies it seemed like 
it was putting everything, it was like one big puzzle piece that they're pushing. And I think it was one of the defense lawyers that said, um, it's not, I think it's not uh, APS that's on trial, it's public education, right? Yes. I, I, can you elaborate on that? And, and what's the significance of that? Yeah, I think it goes back to um, <clears throat> the way that the trial uh, and the and even just being labeled as the the Atlanta cheating scandal, the way that the narrative around that and the the media sensation um, was really used to uh, undermine the idea that public schools and public education. Um, maybe is <laughs> that that public education is a worthwhile institution, right? So um, we know that our public schools have flaws, but but we need to rally around them and mm-hmm. and um, support them and and do everything we can to to make them um, serve all students as they as they should and as many are. I think that we find that even the schools that are that are sometimes labeled failing because of test scores. Um, that there's there's problems with the way that these tests miss a lot of what's really going on in schools uh, yeah. um, and the ways that that children are benefiting from the love that a lot of teachers bring and the the support in terms of aspects of their lives that maybe aren't academic, but are just as important to to their lives, mm-hmm. to to growing as people. So so we know that our, our public schools are important in all these ways. And yet the dominant narrative right now is is that they're just you know rife with corruption and and terrible and that's what that's the narrative that teachers are up against um even with the strikes that we've been seeing over the past year that are are amazing um a lot of the same conditions that are driving teachers to go on strike and to protest are the same things that were are at issue in the atlanta cheating scandal so i think what that defense attorney was saying was that you know this this trial is um a part of this larger narrative and that the outcome of this trial will impact which way that narrative goes. If we can, if we can say that these teachers <laughs> are not racketeers and conspirators, conspirators, um, but in fact are, are innocent people who are doing their best, um, who have been dragged into this, this horrible um, thing that's blown out of proportion then, then that's a win for public education. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, in this case, the first time around, that didn't happen. The jury convicted, but this case is not over. Um, mm-hmm. Shani and her co-defendants are appealing, okay. and there's still that opportunity to um, to defend our educators and to defend public education by pushing for the a just outcome in this case. Good, good. And you, in your, right. you're sitting on appeal, right, Shani? Shani. Yes, I was going to say the appeal is moving forward for the first time in four years. And so I actually still have a prison sentence hanging over my head. Mm. The problem with the appeal is that I don't believe we have an impartial judge on this case. Is it still uh, the Judge Baxter? or No, yes, it wouldn't be. I'm sorry. It is? It is Judge Jerry Baxter, oh yes. Before the verdict was released, he told the jury, whatever your verdict is, I will defend it until I die. Mm. He also had a private conversation with the district attorney. Um, during the trial, he said perjury is being committed daily here, but he didn't strike anyone's testimony. He wow. didn't declare a mistrial. There was a situation where he tried to assist a state witness with identifying one of my co-defendants. And then he tried to bully my co-defendants into taking the district attorney's sentencing agreement 
which included giving up their constitutional right to appeal. Wow. He had promised to give them first offender status and an appeal bond. But once he learned that my co-defendants didn't want to take that sentencing agreement, Judge Baxter became vindictive. And he basically said that he wasn't going to grant anyone an appeal bond or first offender status. And so, of course, our attorneys pushed back on that and reminded him of what he had already said. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, I guess I'm just an Indian giver. Wow. And so we need more eyes (laughs) on this case because as of today, Judge Jerry Baxter will decide if I get a new trial. So it's important for folks to say, (laughs) we have no idea how this is even possible. We have no idea. It's important for folks to, you know, stay updated on our case. Um, How can people help in any way? Is there any way? Any way they can reach out? Well, we like we encourage people to sign up for our mailing list on our website, teacherontrial.com. I'm also on uh, social media platforms at Shawnee Author. Um, but yeah, just to stay connected because there may be a point in time where we will need people to act. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just important that we're able to stay in um, constant communication. Yeah, we'll definitely do. We'll definitely put the, the that website in the show notes so yeah, everybody can nah, 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 click, yes. on and click on it and support. Yeah. In the streets it's getting hot, and the youths them I get so cold. Searching for food for the pot, and they'll do anything to fill that gap. Lord, in the streets it's getting hot, and the youths them I get so cold. Searching for food for the pot But they do anything to fill that gap As generation comes and grows You got to make preparation while the youth them grow It's what you reap, it's what you sow The youth them are the light and the future So when does them you know If education is the key Now tell me why the big heads are make it so expensive for we Give them the key or set them free The streets is getting hot, and the youths them I get so cold. Searching for food for the pot, where they do anything to fill that gap. Boy, in the streets is getting hot, and the youths them I get so cold. Searching for food for the pot, where they do anything to fill that gap. Yeah. Well, nah, 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 yeah. If you're enjoying Book Speeds and Beyond, do us a favor. Go into the show notes of any episode, click on the iTunes logo to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. I, I want to get back to this whole thing about cheating by, on the standardized test. and But the one thing about charter schools is how do they measure themselves? And what makes them say that they're more effective and more superior than public schools. I'm, I meant to do what, what are the standards to hire their teachers? How do they measure that success? Yeah. So, um, the way that charter schools work is that they, um, get to have exemptions from some of the, um, rules that, uh, traditional public schools have to follow, Um, concerning things like um, class size and um, 
other uh, administrative things in terms of, um, you know, their their staff and teachers um, in exchange for meeting certain agreements, expectations um, that are set forth in their charter. And that usually has to do with performance, whether it's test scores or, or other measures um, like graduation rates and things like that. Um, so so the charter. So it's, it's different for each school, um, depending on. Um, the agreement with whether it's the state authorizing the charter or the local school board authorizing the charter. Um, and But even if those measurements, even if they're being held to the same standards uh, of, you know, these are the test scores that you need to, you need to make sure that this percentage of your students are, are meeting this level on their test scores. Um, even if those are the same as uh, traditional public schools, um, going back to what I was mentioning earlier, just about how charter schools have, uh, some charter schools have circumvented that by trying to weed out certain students that they deem undesirable or that they don't think are going to uh, be as academically successful. Um, that's one of the ways that, that they're essentially failing our students, hmm. um, even if it looks like, you know, there's the students that are there are doing well. Um, it's really about the students who aren't there, who have been pushed out, right, mm -hmm. through this system. Mm. So since since the writing of this book and how many schools have closed, public schools have closed in Atlanta so far? And what has been the rise? Uh, how, how has the growth of charter schools been? That's a good question, and I would have to um, look up the exact number of school closures. Um, I know there have been um, several that have closed in the past few years, and um, charters in Atlanta have, um, ha new charters have continued to open up. One thing that we see is that the overall number of charters hasn't moved that much because charters uh, have also closed um, mm. just as quickly as they open. And so one of the problems with charters is a sort of fly-by-night situation where, for example, we had one called Latin Academy um, that was around for a few years until it was found that the um, CEO was embezzling hundreds of thousands of dollars. It <laughs> the total ended up being almost a million to pay for um, strippers, luxury <laughs> cars, and other luxury items, yes. And um, it's important to note that someone, one of the board members of this charter school, because instead of having an elected school board, there are these, um, you know, it's like a nonprofit. You should have board of directors who, um, who are appointed. Um, they, uh, one of the board members was Kathleen Mathers, who worked under Sonny Perdue um, as the head of the governor's office of student achievement and spearheaded the investigation into Atlanta public schools and Doherty County schools. So she was really, um, you know, pushing for, uh, you know, we need to find out what's happening in these schools with cheating and, and really pushing for the, what she called accountability. And at the same time, who was holding <laughs> this uh, charter school principal accountable? Hmm. It was her job and her fellow board members and somehow they didn't notice that hundreds of thousands of dollars <laughs> right. were missing from the bank account. Hmm. Um, so that's just one example of how, um, you know, and, and that's kind of worst case scenario. We were careful to say in the book um, that we don't think that all charter schools are terrible. There mm -hmm. are some right. that do a good job. But the issue is that because of the problems with the oversight, um, it's really hit or miss. And, right. and we see that companies are able to come in and take advantage of that. So. 
So how are families? That's what I was gonna say. We oh, don't. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, no, please, Shani. Sorry. No, I'm just gonna say we don't come down on any parents that choose to send their children to charter schools because we know that parents are really just trying to do the best that they can for their children right. and provide them with the best education. All we're saying is that let's take a step back to look and see how did we get into this situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also, um, Anna mentioned Kathleen Mathers. Um, we talk about the the hypocrisy that at the same time that the governor, Sonny Perdue, sent in his special investigators into the schools, he actually used those same questionable test scores in an application to win a $400 million federal race to the top grant, which Georgia later won. Really? Um, Kathleen Mathers was <laughs> one who spoke about um, why they felt justified for using those scores during the trial. And there was uh, there was another woman, I can't think of her name, um, but she was an education official who also spoke on why they felt justified. Um, but it was really vague, the answer that they gave, um, because 20% of the scores were inflated. Mm. And they used those same scores in an application to get $400 million. So this was um, like so during the scandal? Ahead. They used the same test scores to get a grant from the government and got that grant. Wow. It was literally at the same time that, that the governor launched the investigation into Atlanta public schools in Doherty County um, was when they were applying for that grant. So he was saying to on the state level, I think these scores are fraudulent and we should uh, use GBI to investigate and telling the federal government, um, look at how our test scores have risen. It's the result of um, what did they call it, Shawnee? Better professional development and right. investment <laughs> higher yeah. standards. And <laughs> so they didn't have and to give so, back the money the is, after all no, of this. that's the thing. And then, hmm. to our knowledge, they never amended the application. But what they were trying, what they tried to testify to, um, they were basically saying, well, we did take APS scores into consideration. They were trying to say that they removed all of the inflated scores but that it didn't affect the state average. Mm. And so basically they could, that the numbers didn't change and they didn't have any proof of that. And that's, you know, that's pretty hard to believe. Yeah, absolutely. 20% of inflated <laughs> floors and the numbers stay exactly the same. Mm-hmm. You know, that's and, hard to believe. And what's going on with this money? <laughs> any? Exactly. Yeah. How was that? How was that $400 siphoned exactly. into whose hand? You know, yeah, the article came out recently in the Atlanta Journal Constitution um, about that four hundred million dollar grant and and whether it had been effective. And it was basically inconclusive um, mm. <laughs> as to whether it had really um, been put to use uh, in ways that that um, sort of met the expectations of that grant. Wow. so so how are families, you know, communities and educators and others? fighting corporate uh, education reform movement. What are they doing? Well, there's definitely the teacher strikes um, that have been fighting for less standardized testing. Um, you know, they they actually have been fighting the corporate education reform movement. They've been gaining ground. They're fighting for higher salaries. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anna, can you think of anything else? Yeah, I mean, definitely there's so many, so many um, struggles on the local level. Uh, We were just in New Jersey um, on a little book tour 
And, um, and everywhere we went, we were able to, um, you know, meet with amazing education organizers, uh, teachers, parents, uh, and community members who um, are, are fighting corporate education reform in, in a lot of ways. And, and the folks in New Jersey were telling us um, that they had defeated some local legislation that would have um, enabled new charter schools um, that the community didn't want. Um, and we've seen that in Georgia as well. We talk in the book about um, Gwinnett County Schools, how um, the local school board turned down an application for uh, to open a new charter school by a company called Charter Schools USA. It's one of the biggest for-profit education charter school companies. Um, and the school board, uh, you know, did did a good job as elected officials. They listened to the the people in their community who were saying, you know, we don't want this. This for-profit company that has a track record of um, of sort of mismanagement of money and resources, um, and the problem with that was that even though the local school board rejected that charter school, um, the state then created a workaround where they created a, a state charter commission that can override the decisions of local <laughs> school boards. So it's like um, an ongoing struggle yeah. where, um, and not, and and I think that there are there there are victories in there, but then we have to, you know, with each victory, sort of say, okay, what what's going to come next from the the, or, the corporate education reform movement and the elected officials that um, that are sort of doing their bidding, um, and always be ready. Gotta get it, yeah. Yeah, the people starving for something new. They starving for it. Did you have fun at school today, Trini? My little man go to bed so hungry Get up, go to school with his nose runny Come home with his nose bloody His sister laughing, he like, what's so funny? Till she drowned out by the sounds of hunger pains in his tummy Nothing in the freezer, nothing in the fridge Couple of 40 ounces, but nothing for the kids Little man know to eat to live But he don't wanna leave the crib The kid who punched him in his face House right down the street from his He went anyway, more scared to face his moms Should be him sooner, she flip out Seeing his face scarred, walking past the dope fiends But they smoke and take the place of God Hopes and dreams pouring out the holes and they facing arms little man in the face of harm if he don't eat he need energy so when he go to school he can't compete and keep up all we got is bodegas but hey he only got enough for a quarter water and an hour later anyway grandma say jesus will be here any day good cause with nothing to eat it's getting hard to pray 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 in order to receive then we need to give we gotta feed the kids they gotta eat to live in order to receive then we need to give gotta feed the kids, they gotta eat to live In order to receive, then we need to give We gotta feed the kids, they gotta eat to live In order to receive, then we need to give and across the nation, is is Atlanta one of the biggest epicenters for this corporate education reform? Or um, I, I think you said also uh, parts of Louisiana. Is there what, what what is the pattern? Where do they focus most of their efforts? Yeah, um, I mean, the, I think that states that uh, have charter school laws on the books are sort of equally. Um, seeing this happen. So, so some states have really been late to the game um, in a good way and have, have um, reject, have not even passed laws enabling charter schools. So like Alabama, for example, until this year had no charter schools 
Um, this, I think, last year actually was when their legislation passed to to enable charter schools. So places like that will be interesting to watch um, as uh, to see if people there, uh, if communities there are able to look at what's happened in other places and say, oh, no, we don't want that and, and how that will play out. But but Georgia has had charter schools since, um, since the 90s. Um, so yes, it is. It is um, uh, one of the epicenters. Um, Florida, for sure. Um, that's uh, the governor at the time, Jeb Bush, um, was very instrumental in paving the way for charter schools and enabled the rise of this company, Charter Schools USA, that has spread. Um, California, um, Michigan. I mean, there's certain institutions that really connect the dots. So, like the Broad Foundation is one. There are um, private, uh, you know, philanthropy that has um, and uh, sort of program for where they bring in um, superintendents and sort of indoctrinate them with <laughs> this sort of hmm. pro-charter ideology, and then those superintendents sort of fan out across the country. Wow. Um, and so Broad <laughs> was responsible for taking the um, state superintendent from Louisiana, who orchestrated the what was called the recovery school district which after hurricane katrina turned um, almost all of new orleans schools into charters took that person and sent him on a speaking tour hmm. um, to other states and so he came to georgia and presented to our legislators um, and that was really how uh, georgia kind of crafted the copycat legislation for that he was also sent to michigan to do the same um, and maybe other places those are just the two that i know of because there was reporting about it um, so, so those are some, just one example of how, you know, from private philanthropy to, um, elected officials, how there are sort of these, um, these, uh, relationships and connections in, in place that are furthering this movement. Wow. Yeah. And the more we travel and do like, um, book tours and things like that, we're really saying that people are starting to wake up to the connection between charters, school closures, and gentrification, mm. that this is not just something that was happening in Atlanta. And, you know, we always like to do big picture. You know, in this country, over 40 states have had cheating allegations. 14 of those states it was considered to be widespread cheating. And in Washington, D.C., there were 103 schools that were flagged for suspiciously high test scores. Mm. So clearly there is systemic pro there are systemic problems um but just making those links for people um as we travel people are saying oh my goodness the same thing happened over here mm -hmm. you know everywhere we go and so this is really a national crisis that needs to be addressed right and you guys talked about how the aps cheating scandal was a distraction that deferred the real problems that needed to be solved what, what are some of those real problems that, that, that need to be solved? Well, um, definitely, you know, we've already spoken on the, um, the tax allocation districts and the fact that private interests have been profiting off of public education while politicians drain schools and resources. That needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. um, also, I feel as though racial and economic inequities that exists, in my opinion, because of stolen wealth and resources out of black communities. Mm -hmm. That needs to be addressed as well. Mm -hmm. um, we talk about, and I worked in a community called Mechanicsville, um, 
In the 1940s and 50s, there were several Black-owned businesses. This was a thriving Black community. Um, and so, but as more white people started moving to the suburbs and more Black people started moving to the city, it yielded greater political Black power. And this was something that concerned white business elites. And so they came up with this plan called the Lochner Plan, which was a plan for highway construction to go through and rip right in the middle of these hmm. thriving black communities. Hundreds of homes were taken through eminent domain and thousands of people were displaced. And so that was just the beginning of the destruction of these black communities. And so no one has addressed those issues. What they do is they scapegoat people in yeah. the APSG trial and point the finger and say it was their fault. You know, that actually happened during the trial. One of the lead prosecutors during the closing argument asked, asked the jury, why is crime so high? Why are you scared somebody's going to hit you on the back of your head and take your car? Who's breaking into your house? You know, he was blaming us for poverty and violent crime, mm -hmm. you know, just completely forgetting about the past history of the intentional destruction of those black communities. Right, right. And you guys said in the book, they said that the teachers are cheating the children and all the teachers in my most of my life are the ones that support the children the most. They they come out their pocket to buy them supplies. They they stay later after school. Sometimes they they visit the kids house to make sure things are okay they i and just to say that the teachers are cheating the children the public teachers are cheating the children was just hypocrisy in, in, in the in the biggest way exactly and it was really about this bonus money this is how they were able to say that we cheated the children was that we had received all of this money which was a complete falsehood hmm. Altogether, the people on trial received a total of about $4,500 in bonus money. I actually never received any money mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. at my school, we did not meet our district target. And so here you have, once again, the state received $400 million. <laughs> I didn't receive any money. A lot of people didn't. And if they did, it might have been $500 or $1,000, which, like you said, a lot of educators put that money right back into the classroom anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Why were we treated as, you know, or portrayed in the media as like these mobsters? You know, I thought it was completely ridiculous. It was overkill. Yeah. Yeah. Just just the word corporate education reform movement. It's there's so many people with so much money involved that they can sway the public's perception. The, the news seemed like it was on their side. I mean, it, it's it's incredible the the machine how the machine works. But what 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 is the biggest impact the scandal has had on on your life, Shawnee? Well, I would say that right after the the verdicts were released and I found that I was guilty, um, you know, I became an emotional wreck. I was diagnosed with PTSD. Mm. I've had to you know, learn how to deal with stress and anxiety, all while raising a newborn. You know, yeah, I, right. I wanted to concentrate on being a good mom. Um, but you were you were pregnant throughout the trial. I mean, that's, yes, that's important I for people to know. Yeah. Wow. I was pregnant throughout the entire eight month trial. Well, um, luckily the so, baby's yes, fine, I think it was right? Stressful. What did you say? Luckily the baby's fine, right? No, I mean that's stressful. 
Yes, yes. By the grace of God, the baby is fine. Um, And he's a happy child, and so I'm happy. Um, But yes, it was stressful. It was financially draining because we were Mm. in trial Monday through Thursday, 9 to 5. So we we couldn't keep a job. And I mean, to have a racketeering charge on your background, it's hard enough to get it to find a job anyway um, after we were, were charged. But... So, yeah, it was financially draining, mentally, emotionally, it was draining. Um, but I will say I feel like it did bring my family closer together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, during times of tragedy, I, I feel like that's when the people who really support you and have your back, that's when you learn who your real friends are. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's that's how it's affected my life. Wow. And, and, yeah, uh, and something, yeah. yeah, no, please. Oh, I just... Uh, just that Shawnee mentioned the trial was eight months long. I just want to chime in to say that it, that is the longest criminal trial in Georgia history. Really? Um, and anyone wow. familiar with the criminal justice system knows that, you know, a two week trial is usually considered a long trial. It's mm. just unprecedented for a trial to last eight months. And so that just tells you um, the, the gives you a sense of the resources that the state thought was appropriate to put into um uh, criminalizing educators um, at the same time that we need those resources in our classroom and they're being drained from our classrooms. Absolutely. And and I almost forgot all about the racketeering and something called RICO. And <laughs> and that's the thing that took down the mafia. And uh, yeah. if you guys can elaborate on that, it seemed like the law was one way and then it was changed up all of a sudden and uh, applied another way. Can you guys talk about how you guys were um, yeah. implicated under that, in that, under RICO? Right. Well, you're right. The RICO law um, was created to control organized crime. So they had to prove that APS was a criminal enterprise. <laughs> um, and the way it was interpreted in our case was a complete overreach. The charges were basically saying that two people who may not have known each other but had similar intentions or actions could be conveyed, could be engaged in a conspiracy. So two people could be in a conspiracy that didn't even know they were in a conspiracy. Mm. Um, so it was a complete overreach. Um, and then it was a 20-year prison sentence. So many wow. of us were facing 20 to, I would say, about 45 years in prison, a prison time. 45 years? So when you think about people, yes, 20 to 45 years that we were facing in prison. Wow. And so when you think about people who were taking plea deals, um, because you have a lot of people saying, well, people were pleading guilty and people were saying, and I'm thinking, well, if you were facing decades of your life in prison, that was a tough decision. Mm-hmm. And I think people did what they felt was best for them. Mm-hmm. And so there were some of us that stayed strong and said, no, we know this isn't right. We know we didn't do anything. We're going to fight. And there were some people that said, no, I'm getting out of it. I, I need to take a, a plea deal. Because that, just having decades of your life, yes. thinking that you could spend it in prison, it was horrifying. Just having that time over your head. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, I was sentenced with five years to serve one in prison, um, which, was, which is much better than a 25-year prison sentence. But even having one year held right. over your head. You know, right. I have a... He'll be four in a few weeks. Mm. And just the thought of having to spend a year away from him, he doesn't understand what's going on. Absolutely. You know, just to have his mother leave all of a sudden, that's just, it's horrifying. Yeah. 
Yeah, and we should say that um, two of the educators uh, who were on trial with Shawnee um, are currently in prison. So um, nine educators appealed. Two of them took a um, different route, a different strategy, and that made it up to the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, which declined to hear it last fall. Mm. Um, and and the you know declining to hear a case doesn't necessarily say anything about the merits of the case. Mm. The, there's many factors that go into that decision mm. uh, for the Supreme Court. Um, so that was um, a really unfortunate moment in this case. Um, those two educators had to turn themselves in in October. And they are currently in prison, and so we are we are fighting for um, the freedom of all of these educators, um, for the two who are incarcerated to be released, and for the seven who are still appealing um, to see these charges dropped. Wow! Hopefully, it, 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 the story ends positive. I was born in the Central District, raised in the South End. I'm a homegrown kid, yep, 206 living. Used to play flyers up when I lived up on Union. Pushed it out to Orcas and eventually the Kenyans. Didn't have much, but thankful for all we was giving. It was all hood until we and see crept in. And the blacks went naked and gentrification came. Golf of Franklin, robberies ain't even the same. Mark my words, they're gonna be white boys all on the team. I don't reminisce when I drive through this hood, I feel pain. I ain't proud of these new developments. I feel shame And I ain't trying to preach at these young brothers just spit game I guess Kent's the new South End And the South End's the CD And the CD is just a thing of the past But I remember Sammy's Burgers Soul food down in Helens Holly Hill back when Duceate was full of felons Now the streets is naked Yeah, they claim it, but nobody banks it My man called me from the joint I said, this thing is changing He said, young homie, what you mean? I said, I can't explain it These folks is moving us around Just like an experiment The city ain't the same The South End ain't the same And all what I really want to get from you guys lastly is what what do you want what do you want the reader to mainly take away from from this book as far as the trial is concerned. We want people to know that the trial was a sham. And specifically for my case, I didn't cheat. I didn't receive any bonus money. Um, and my test scores didn't even count. Mm-hmm. Big picture, we want, I would like people to take a closer look when you hear stories in the media. Um, don't take everything for face value. You know, like really try to understand different perspectives. I think that's one of the main things that that I've learned is you know hearing different sides of a story is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just feel like we need to stop scapegoating people for a broken system that was designed to fail in the first place, mm-hmm. and and work on transforming the system. Mm-hmm. Anna. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think that um, the only additional thing I have is just that that the history of racial injustice in this country runs so deep and it's evident in um, the attacks that we see on 
all of our public assets, not only public education, but as we talk about in the book, public housing, Mm -hmm. um, so many of the things that should be held in common in society to benefit everybody are increasingly um, under attack and, and being pushed toward privatization. And racism is fueling that. It's, it's really about, um, you know, white people not wanting to share, honestly, uh, as we saw with the backlash to Brown versus Board. Public education was fine uh, with white folks up to that point um, until, until they had to uh, desegregate. And so, and, and as a white person, I say this to um, point out that, that we are cutting off our nose to spite our face. Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, these uh, as things become privatized, um, the whole society gets worse for everybody. So I think that, you know, looking at the reckoning with the deep history of racial injustice in this country is key to not only freeing our Atlanta educators, but to um, righting so many of the wrongs that we are plagued with today. I want to say, guys, you did a great job with this book, breaking it down to the specifics, giving us the big picture and and, and all the the uh, just the overall view of what is going on. I, I this book truly will help people understand uh, what, what's at stake when it comes to public education. And like at the same time, just talking about when should something, why sh- does everything need to be privatized? You know, these are the important things of why things need to remain public or common. And um, this book does a great job of laying out that, that argument. Um, so Shani uh, Robinson and Anna Simonton, thank you so much for being on Book Speaks and Beyond today. Truly appreciate it. Thank you so much for hearing my story. I appreciate you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed the interview with Shani Robinson and Anna Simonton about their book, None of the Above, the untold story of the Atlantic public school cheating scandal, corporate greed, and the criminalization of educators. You can go right inside the show notes, click on the link to purchase the book. Also, if you want to stay abreast of what's going on with the trial when it comes to the Atlantic's public schools and also ways that you can help, in the show notes, you will find the website teacherontrial.com. And while you're in the show notes, click on the Patreon link to support the show. So until next time, let's read, listen, explore.